science. Listening to uh, Love and Science here on BCFM uh, with me, Malcolm Love. I've got two guests with me. I've got Robert uh, Massey, uh, who you heard last week. Robert's uh, come back. Hi, Robert. Hi again. It's great to have you back on the show. Uh, and I've got Jamie Thakrar. Hello. Hi, Jamie. And Jamie's uh, an old friend of the show now. Um, Jamie, you uh, you raced here from all the way from Dorking, I believe. I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> you heard the call and you came. I did. Fan- fantastic. <laughs> so um, if you're uh, on half term this week or whatever, then uh, hopefully you've got a few minutes uh, spare from the kids. You can put your feet up and listen to an hour of science chat, science in the news, science behind the news as we kick a few uh, stories uh, around. And uh, without more ado, uh, let's get to it, because there is a report, uh, and I discover that I'm not connected to the internet, let's go to something else then, Uh, there is a a report uh, that is saying that CO2 levels uh, are uh, higher than uh, we've ever known them to be. So the the last measuring of CO2... Robert, you've had a look at this story, haven't you? I have. I mean, you know, it's funny, we were talking about this beforehand, and I stress I'm not a climatologist, but when you look at the data, it's really quite compelling. What it says is that the the number of parts per million of carbon dioxide, CO2, in the Earth's atmosphere is at a very, very high level, well above 400 parts per million. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it's much more than it's been even, say, two or three hundred years ago, and we know that because we can measure ice cores, look at atmospheric measurements. It's very clear that's happening. And that's obviously a concern because high levels of CO2 are a factor in driving global warming, driving climate change. And it's something we should worry about. Yes, it says uh, researchers say a combination of human activities and the El Nino weather phenomenon uh, drove CO2 to a level not seen in 800,000 years. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? What well, it is, and it's, it's you know, we, we should worry about not these things. Not in a things. good way. Not in a good way, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not like this affects the kind of quality of the air we breathe, in a sense. But once you interfere with the chemistry of an atmosphere, once you start pumping more of one gas into it, it's hard to believe that it wouldn't have an impact. And the extreme example in astronomy is that if you look at uh, Venus, it's got a thick carbon dioxide atmosphere. And as a result, it's got the hottest surface in the solar system. Even though it's much further from the sun than Mercury, it's got a much hotter surface. So we can yes. see these extreme extreme cases and what happens if it goes badly wrong. You, you told me something quite interesting about... Oh, I'm very pleased to see the internet has popped up again. Um, uh, you told me something very interesting about this uh, earlier where you, you said actually one of the clues that CO2 was a driver for higher temperatures in the atmosphere was scientists looking at the atmosphere of venus that's fascinating and we didn't know much about the temperature on venus until the space age because you can see it from the earth it's about the same size the earth it's obviously a very very different world we had an idea what the atmosphere was made of but until we had probes descending to the surface the russians managed that a good few times they were all destroyed really quickly it's so hot that it's hot enough to melt lead so these probes would typically work for say a couple of hours before they shut down so built like tanks in good soviet style and the land transmit send pictures back and be destroyed but it was a it was a a clear example of where very high levels of that greenhouse gas has a major effect so you know certainly changing the earth's atmosphere even a tiny bit in that direction is not good it doesn't sound like a good idea now 
Nobody's suggesting that we're going to end up like Venus, at least not until you wait till the end of the life of the sun, which is many thousands of millions of years away. But nonetheless, it's, you know, if you don't believe the science, you should look around at these other worlds where it clearly demonstrates that carbon dioxide in large quantities has an effect. And I should say, I'm a terrible host because I, I should say to people who, who didn't know, although they're known to the audience here, Robert, of course, uh, uh, you're talking about astronomy uh, largely because you're the acting executive director of the Royal Astronomical Society. So we're very lucky to uh, have you uh, with us. And Jamie, of course, you are a neuroscientist. You're a clinical neuroscientist yes, doing uh, some PhD research. I am. I'm studying how stress affects um, brain development in healthy adults and abnormal circuitry. Oh, well, I should offer myself as a subject. <laughs> abnormal circuitry definitely is in there. Uh, the the um, Going back to the, the CO2 and everything, there's another story linked with this, which has been hanging on from last week, uh, which is kind of, it's a sort of a political, social story. But the BBC was criticised officially uh, for not challenging uh, a climate change denier, uh, uh, who's uh, Nigel Lawson, who was our former uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, of course, who famously resigned uh, uh, in the conflict with uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and Nigel Lawson was saying, apparently in an interview, that this was all baloney about CO2, uh, levels rising and that uh, actually the the climate had cooled a little bit. I don't know if any of you, Jamie, did you see this story at all? Yeah, he claimed that temperatures had decreased slightly, which is absolutely false. Um, that is fake news at its truest form, really. Um, and that's absolutely not the case. We know that actually um, world temperatures are at an all-time high. Um, and, and like Robert was saying earlier, so... You know, we've had a increase in CO2 levels that's record um, ever. I think it's 3.3 3 parts per million when the highest ever has been 2.7. So, you know, this really is the worst time to be telling fake news about climate change when people really need to see that it's human activities that's causing these record figures in CO2. Do you, but there's something I come across quite a lot when I talk to scientists, because I guess this is one of the places where uh, media meets science, you know, uh, and, and is, is, is this somewhere where you think, well... Oh, have a little bit of music popping up there. Um, uh, I have to get used to this new desk in our new uh, studio. That's just a, a simple diversion there. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it. Um, do, do you find that it's important to uh, listen to science news, to follow science news? And do, you either, do, you, do either of you get mad with stories that you hear? I do sometimes. I mean, it, it, I think the Nigel Lawson example is a perfect one of where you've got someone who's not an expert, who is almost purporting to be one, who gets coverage on the today program on national radio on a respected program and so he's he's probably seen as an authority by some of the people listening to it but he's connected with this thing called the global warming policy foundation actually it seems to be very selective in its use of data its findings are disputed as far as i can tell by virtually every climate scientist mm. so why would we take his authority on trust and it's not balanced to have someone like that who has no expertise just because you feel you've got to present two sides of an argument if you're going to do this at all then at least 
take someone who's qualified in that area and challenge them. But as far as I can see, you talk to climatologists, they'll dismiss this out of hand. It's just a shame that someone like that's given the credence they don't deserve. And, you know, if he wants to come on and talk about whether the chancellor, the current chancellor is doing a bad job, but he's probably qualified to do that. Yeah. He's much less qualified to talk about the ice caps and CO2 and everything else. Yes. And it was a similar thing, wasn't it, when Donald Trump was uh, saying, you know, when they were pulling out of the um, uh, Paris Climate Accord and he was saying, well, I, I, I think that the science isn't clear and uh, the jury is out. And you think, well, yes, um, you know, someone might express that opinion, but what on earth would you know about it? You know, it's uh, just a very, very strange uh, business indeed. But uh, I think it's really important that we get good accurate reporting of science news don't you yes definitely you know i think that people will hear what they believe you know if sorry they'll believe what they hear the wrong way around um you know if somebody like like robert said if somebody like nigel lawson who's a well respected by some people um public figure you know it comes out and says something that is with with as much confidence as he did, you know, it's really believable. You know, if I hadn't looked up the article and actually read that properly, you know, which is something that, you know, people like us who are interested in science definitely endeavour to do regularly, um, I'd believe it. And yeah. and why wouldn't you? And so I think the BBC in particular has a responsibility to show the balanced argument. And I think they have um, a responsibility to, you know, no platform people who actually are, have no idea what they're talking about. They can't just put them on because they think this person's a public figure. They'll know what they're talking about. You know, their journalists need to be a little bit more thorough with how they question people. So. Yes. Well, fortunately, the BBC does have some very good science journalists so I would say that yeah definitely. I think they, they do and um, uh, but occasionally these things slip through you are listening to uh, BCFM radio bcfmradio.com or maybe 93.2 FM it's always great to have your company if by the way uh, you want to catch up with any of our BCFM programs then you can go uh, to that very uh, uh, website bcfmradio.com go to the schedule you'll see all the programs listed there and uh, you can listen uh, to any of them uh, that uh, you you want to pleasure unbounded Um, uh, i'm uh, joined uh, in the studio by uh, robert massey and uh, jamie thackra and we're just looking at science in the news and science behind the news uh, for the next 45 minutes or or so Um, we said uh, just before we had the music that uh, there's a, a visitor has come into our solar system and uh, I'm looking at Robert Massey, uh, acting executive director of the Royal Astronomical Society because um, we're talking about an asteroid. Uh, how on earth do astronomers uh, um, come to the conclusion that this may probably have come from outside of our own solar system? It, it's a very good question. The, the answer is that you look at the shape of the orbit. So you imagine that most of the, the planets, the comets, the many tens of thousands of asteroids we've got go around the sun, not necessarily in circles, but in long squash circles called ellipses. So they move around the sun in incomplete orbits. Now, this one has a hyperbolic path, which means that it's an open curve. So it appears 
to have come in towards the sun, been deflected by the sun's gravity, and now it's on its way out again. But that that curve doesn't close up. In other words, it was it was never, or at least it appears that it was never part of a bigger orbit. So it implies that it's coming from interstellar space from another star. Now it's very hard to say which one, but over some vast distance, probably over tens or hundreds of millions of years. So, so the, I was going to say, so this star, this um, asteroid could have been travelling for. Uh, but potentially uh, even billions of, of years. Really? Uh, well, unless, unless we actually got very close to it and were able to take samples and do some quite uh, difficult analysis, chemical analysis, you'd need to have a probe there to do that. Ideally, having a lab on Earth, it would be really hard to tell. But my guess is if it really has come from other stars, you must be looking at a minimum of tens of billions of years, possibly a lot longer than that. So it's incredibly intriguing. I mean, I, there's a science fiction story by uh, Arthur C. Clarke, Rendezvous with Rama, which talks about an asteroid coming into the solar system. And then yeah, obviously there's a set in the future uh, crews going off to have a look and finding it's an alien civilization. I don't think this one is that, but it's a, it's a nice idea. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to get up close and see if there's any writing on it. That exactly. Would always be a clue, <laughs> that would, that would be quite yeah. something. Yeah. Um, I, can you just explain? I'm going to ask a really basic question here, but it's one that um, uh, people are confused about from uh, time to time. What's the difference between an asteroid and a comet? There is a bit of a crossover, but essentially uh, comets have lots of volatile material, ices and so on. And I say ices rather than ice because although they're mostly water, they've got other gases in there as well. Uh, they spend a lot of tend to be typically far from the sun coming close to the sun when they get close all those ices boil they don't melt because you need an atmosphere for that to make uh, gases turn into or solids turn into a liquid when they get close to the sun you see all this material streaming off it's pushed back by the wind from the sun and also even the light from the sun because you, you wouldn't think it on earth but light exerts a pressure so that literally sunlight is blowing back a cometary tail then it goes around the sun and cools down again and then the tails shut off and an asteroid is more of a rocky or metallic object but they can there are objects that are on the boundary between the two uh, so that's the the more or less the distinguishing feature the fact between them and when we have um, asteroids because occasionally you'll hear uh, people say ah an asteroid is passing uh, between the moon and the earth or it's you know coming coming really close um, where generally have they come from if they come from our own solar system most of the ones you're describing are called near-earth objects and they there is a subcategory called potentially hazardous objects of which there's only fortunately only a small yeah. number and those are the ones that come very close to the earth and in theory could hit it at some point. Uh, Near-Earth objects are ones that are close, but you know, in general, don't present any kind of risk. But they are all objects within our solar system. They almost certainly originated here, and they travel around the sun in reasonably circular orbits. And, and while we're, while I've got you here, I could ask you some of these basic questions. Um, so we we know that, for example, or, or, or th there's a general assumption now that the dinosaurs were killed off by an asteroid possibly something like a kilometre long that struck the Earth about 65 uh, million years ago. Um, obviously a catastrophic, life-changing, earth-changing event. Is that something that we could say, well, it'll probably happen again? Or has that time passed in our solar system? I, uh, the answer is that the risk is still there, that if you wait long enough, it will almost certainly happen again. At least an object of a, a large size will hit us. And the yeah. example, uh, was it two, three years ago, the Chelyabinsk impact in Russia, yeah. when an object came into the atmosphere of the Earth completely undetected, exploded with the force of a small nuclear bomb and shattered windows and led to injuries. It wasn't it, you know, it really, yeah. it was 
good that it happened in a fairly remote area, but it does demonstrate these things happen, and if you wait long enough, then something like that certainly will happen again, but we could be talking a very long time into the future, at least we hope so. There are various projects to detect as many of these kind of objects as possible to get hopefully give us some kind of warning. Think about exotic means of deflecting them, everything from roughening the surface to get, that, to get sunlight, to give them a little nudge to the side, to things like putting little rocket engines on the side and nudging in that way. So it is taken seriously, and certainly the detection has been yes. very good in recent years, and actually, in a sense, has been a bit more reassuring because it seems to have reduced the number that might be like it is at some point in the future. But no, if you wait a million years, it's almost certain you would get something on a large scale that would do, do damage to the Earth, or at least to life on Earth. Right, okay. And, and um, this visitor that has come into our solar system presumably is a very rare event, or we're assuming it's a very uh, rare it, event. It, it, Exactly. It's uh, something we haven't seen before. We obviously don't know. If you start to see more of these, then maybe there's, you know, maybe our telescopes are getting better at detecting them. But it's certainly the first time we've seen an object like this, and that's why there's a lot of interest in it. I mean, what would be fantastic is if something fairly small, I hasten to add, were to hit the Earth like this, we could get that sample, we could look at it in detail. We're not in that position, but that would be intriguing as well. At the moment, all we've got is small interstellar little tiny grains that are embedded in meteorites, and that's, that's our clue to the very origin of our solar system because it tells us about the, the environment in which the Earth and the planets formed. So do we know how far away this one is at the moment? I haven't checked the details of how far away it is right now, but from what I've read, I think it's tens of millions of kilometres away. It was never close to the Earth. It came into about 25 million kilometres from the Sun, which is fairly close, but it's on its way out again anyway, and as it gets out, it'll, it'll fade rapidly. So... Uh, my guess is that there are people, in fact, I know a, a colleague of mine in Belfast, Alan Fitzsimmons, is looking at it right now because they want all the data they can while it's still, vis uh, while it's still visible. Yeah, so there's no need to cancel any plans or anything. This, this one shouldn't <laughs> worry you whatsoever, no. And I, I, I get plenty, I, my, my sleep is not affected by the risk of asteroid impact. I don't worry about it that much. So this one, do they know whether it's a comet or an asteroid yet? Is it? It was, it was uh, described as a comet to begin with, and now it's assumed it's an asteroid. Okay. So I assume that the, without looking through all the data, I think yeah. what that means is they've not detected any gas emission yeah. or anything like that, or only a little bit. So it indicates that it's, it's a rocky object. You, you raise a very interesting point there, I think. You say maybe our telescopes are getting better, so we, you know, we start to see these things. Although, as you say, we've not seen one of these before. Um, are you... Uh, expecting that um, our knowledge of the universe is suddenly going to increase dramatically soon because we've got we've got some famous we've got this famous telescope the James Webb haven't we which is being launched is it next year, uh, next, year? next year early 2019 they've pushed back the date a little bit right. certainly in the next yeah. couple of years yeah so that's going to make a big change and of course there's the, there's a project called the Galileo the Galileo telescopes which have been mapping the Milky Way, haven't they? And which is our galaxy, and they have so much data that we we don't know what they've found yet. It's like it's like giving you a stack of files with loads of juicy information in, and we haven't had time to read it yet. It, well, astronomy is a big data science. Yeah, uh, I mean, we were saying last week you can get vast amounts of it, terabytes, petabytes of yeah. data, absolutely swamped with it. And then it's the job of people like research students, actually, to go through it and mine that and, and reach conclusions and write the papers on that basis. What it allows you to do is to do really big statistical studies as well. So understanding the shape of our galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars, you need that volume of data to get to yeah. that. You're right, though, that actually I think we're, we're, we've 
I'd like to say we're on the, you know, the beginning of a surge in discovery. Actually, I think we're already there. We've been doing that for at least the last 20 or 30 years. There's been a whole series of space telescopes that have absolutely transformed our ideas about the universe. If astronomers were to look forward to things, I guess it would be James Webb perhaps seeing the very first galaxies in the universe. So looking far back in time, you imagine that light takes... 13 billion years to get to us you look 13 billion years into the past seeing those very first stars and galaxies and also perhaps in the next 20 years seeing whether there are planets like the earth in orbit around other stars with the the coming generation of telescopes will start to allow us to do that so that's the the thing i think we're really looking forward to you're listening to oh, love and science on bcfm managed to just make my chair collapse there very good a very neat trick if you want to entertain the guests in the studio uh, just to remind you uh, my guests this week are uh, dr robert massey who's acting executive director of the royal astronomical society and a phd researcher from bristol uh, clinical neuroscientist jamie thakra um, and uh, the next story up in uh, our science news survey this week is all about um, shrews uh, surviving winter. I know, Jamie, you've had a look at this story. Kick us off on on that. Yeah, this is completely incredible. So the common shrew, um, they've known from for years from having looked at their skulls at different time time points in the year that they seem to get smaller. And what they couldn't, what they didn't know, is whether or not it's just the smaller shrews that are better at surviving the winter. Yeah. than the bigger ones. Yeah, and so they already um, had small, you know, it was, you were selecting animals that had smaller heads. Exactly. Yeah. It was presumed to be kind of a natural selection effect. Yeah. Um, and then they've recently done this study where they've tracked the same shrews throughout the year and they're actually finding that the very same shrew is shrinking its skull and its brain alongside it, um, down by 15% in the winter. It'd be a fantastic party trick, wouldn't it? I mean, it's uh, incredible. What's even more incredible is they're actually then regrowing yes. <laughs> this proportion of the brain back in spring. And it's, it's really amazing. And this is not something that we've really seen in any animals. I mean, we know a lot of animals um, change for the winter. So there's like this Siberian hamster that goes from being this really cute little lovely dark grey colour to going brilliant white. Um, and they thought for a while that these were two separate breeds, but actually they're not. It's just the same hamsters are turning white. So we know a lot of animals have these kind of winter survival tricks but to actually shrink their neural tissue and then reproduce it in the in the spring is incredible yes i i i am always amazed at how much we're learning uh, we, we it seems to me i don't know if i'm imagining this but it seems to me that we're very rapidly learning uh, new things about animals in a way that we didn't before um there's uh, a whole raft of uh, research uh, coming out about animal intelligence you know animals using tools and all of those sorts of things as well as their adaptive ab- abilities it probably is uh, simply that i'm spending more time uh, reading uh, reading this, these kinds of stories because of doing this show and because of my my personal interests and so on but um it, it does strike me the more we know about animals, you know, the, the, the more respect we really should have for them. 
because uh, they they just have these incredible abilities. Shrinking your brain really is, <laughs> and, and it's, 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 it's really amazing. up there. I mean, when when, you, when we <laughs> saw this story, I, I just couldn't believe it. I did a good giggle to myself because I was just thinking this like little animal, which already has quite a small head, is reducing the size of its skull. Um, yeah. And what's what's really interesting is we actually have no idea um, how this affects their cognition. Um, yeah. This is only a recent finding, so it's going to be interesting. I mean, there's a guy quoted in the story as being a shrew biologist <laughs> I don't I mean that's a pretty specific title he's got there but um you know hopefully some these shrew biologists whoever they are are gonna actually have a look at some of these animals up close and maybe we'll be able to see you know how this affects their cognition I mean to, to regrow neural tissue obviously is a really amazing thing and if it's yes. a natural phenomenon um, the information we could get from from knowing how they do that could be really really useful for neuroscience in the future yes abs- absolutely and, and we don't really know how they do it whether it's a loss of water for example yeah it does because uh, the brain is largely made a human brain certainly is largely made of water isn't it presumably it's the same for a, a mammal like a shrew Yes, exactly. So there's no clear information. All all the evidence shows at the moment is that the skull is shrinking and the brain is shrinking. And there seems to be no clear... A clear story about how that's happening. So hopefully, yes. it's going to be some more interesting thing comes out comes out that, that come out in the next um, couple of months. Yeah. So um, maybe they, in January, whether, once this winter's passed, we'll <laughs> whether it affects our ability to remember a shopping list or something, we don't we don't know. <laughs> well, a lot of animals store they things left the for keys. the winter, don't they? So it might be interesting to see how well they remember where they stored their squirrel, <laughs> the yeah. squirrel their, <laughs> um, their sweets and things like the like the. Squirrel. Squirrel in Ice Age does. Uh, <laughs> I think I'd like to regrow my brain at the end of the winter. Yeah, yeah it'd be, <laughs> be fantastic. Pretty wouldn't cool, it? wouldn't it? Well, apparently uh, they use uh, e- this is shrews. They use echolocation to explore their habitat and produce an unpleasant scent to avoid being eaten by cats. It's very very sensible. And then they've added this trick, where their skull shrinks and regrows in the spring. Although we're not quite sure uh, exactly why or how they're doing it. It's known as Daniel's phenomenon, after the scientist who first spotted the effect. Maybe he's the shrew biologist, I don't know. Maybe maybe he is. Um, So, from shrews uh, to something completely different, which is uh, the story about uh, Stephen Hawking. (laughs) If you've seen, you've seen yeah, this. This is great. <laughs> this is amazing. absolutely amazing. <laughs> uh, Stephen, Stephen Hawking's PhD gets two million views. In fact, it crashed the internet uh, when, when, when it was released. Cambridge University Press website. I think. That's, yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, the, the, were it the case that two million people had looked at my PhD thesis, I'd be pretty happy. I think you could probably divide that by seven figures. <laughs> the internal examiner, the Excel examiner, what? my, my mum and dad and me are about the only people who've read it. What was your PhD thesis all about? Oh, a very long time ago. It was about, uh, he says, covering his tracks, but I was, I was looking at uh, the motion of material in the Orion Nebula, which is a cloud of gas and dust that you see in the constellation of Orion in the uh, the winter sky, and uh, inside that there are newly forming stars because we know that the stars form from gravity pulling together gas and dust, and it gets more and more compressed and heats up and then the star eventually switches on and I was looking at those and looking at the outflows because 
in astronomy, there's a lot of examples of where you get jets of material coming out of things, and these are no exception. And we were measuring the speed of the jets coming out. So it was, it was. I mean, it, it was genuinely. There were genuine discoveries. I'm not yeah. saying they were. They weren't earth shattering, and there won't be two million people looking at those ever. I think, but it was. Uh, it was interesting enough at the time. Yeah. Sounds, well, have you put it, it online yet? You never. Yeah. I, I, I haven't. No, you're right. I should put it online and sh- uh, <laughs> shamelessly tweet it. Maybe we should start a competition now. Can you beat Stephen Hawking's uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, two million views? Um, so it said that more than 500,000, this is the article that I'm looking at, more than 500,000 people have also tried to download this paper, which is entitled Properties of Expanding Universes. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, as, as uh, you said, Jamie, Cambridge University's uh, website that uh, put it up. Dr. Arthur Smith, I don't think that's Arthur Smith, the comedian, that's somebody, somebody <laughs> else from the university, called the figures monumental. This is far and away the most accessed item we have in the university's Apollo repository, Dr. Smith uh, said. Um, and uh, Professor Hawkins' PhD thesis is also the most accessed item from any research repository ever. We have never seen numbers like this before. And, of course, he's an extraordinary figure, isn't he? I mean, it's, it's, he is an absolute treasure. I'm, I'm amazed whenever I think about Stephen Hawking. Well, is it uh, his voice that you have at the beginning of the program? No, it isn't. Oh, it no. does sound like him, doesn't it? When it's no, there? wouldn't that be nice <laughs> if it really was him? No, no, it isn't. It's just a, just a robotic voice that we uh, that we used it wasn't intended uh, to sound somebody else said this to me the other <laughs> yeah. day uh, and, and i wouldn't want people to think that we'd uh, you know somehow ripped it off we haven't uh, it's just that uh, might be nice to get him on the phone and get him to re-record yeah, it for you, 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 you uh, <laughs> yes. uh, he, he does seem to be in rather big demand born on the 8th of january 1942 in oxford in england so that makes him how old? He's in his seven, well into his 70s. 75? So, yeah, mm. 75 now. Um, and uh, earned a place at Oxford to read natural science in 1959 before studying for his PhD at uh, Cambridge. In 1963, so about 54 years ago, 54 years ago, was diagnosed with motor neuron disease and given two years to live. So, I mean, he's, he's I mean, he is just one of the most extraordinary people. And, um, I mean, if, if, if any of you are lucky enough to just wander around Cambridge, I promise you'll bump into him because he's always out and about. Um, yes. I was eating an ice cream outside King's College, Cambridge, a couple of years ago uh, when I was staying there for my industrial placement year as part of my degree. And my friend had come to visit, and I said, oh, there's a nice ice cream place out by King's College. Was it there? And Stephen Hawking literally got out of a van with his aides <laughs> and went straight past us. And she was like, was that... Stephen Hawking, and I said he's all—he's always out and about. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, well, he certainly—he certainly didn't give up, did he? He's—he's uh, he, he's made it. And I, one, of, one of the things I wanted uh, to ask you, Robert, because you might—you you might have a, a view on this—is um, Stephen Hawking is up there, isn't he, with the great with the great scientists? It's not just that he's—he happens to be famous because of his disability, but he's somebody who's made very significant. Uh, no, that's right, and particularly in his early work he was uh, understanding things like the way that black holes evaporate over time so he he demonstrated with this this will be an exotic concept to display explain but i'll do my best but so near a black hole you have when you have a vacuum you have pairs of particles and antiparticles come into existence and then tend to annihilate each other if right. you have a t- degree of energy <clears> and they they 
if they smash into each other, they convert it to energy. Now, near a black hole, the idea is that, say, an antiparticle can fall in and effectively, and the other one escapes, and it is effectively lowering the mass of the black hole. So over a long time, even the largest black holes should evaporate someday if you wait hundreds of trillions of years into the future. <laughs> so that was, that was one of his amazing pieces of work. And he's also famous for making huge contributions to cosmology and thinking about the shape of the universe and ideas of that kind. So it's, it's, it's obviously true to say that his fame has been enhanced by the fact that he has motor neuron disease and he's well known for being a long-term survivor of that and a, a distinguished scientist. But we shouldn't imagine that he's not a distinguished scientist anyway. Yeah. He, he yeah. really is. Uh, and he'll be remembered for that as much as anything else. We have got a story here on uh, Love and Science here on BCFM uh, all about the editing of life's building blocks. And we've just been talking um, uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie and, and Robert and myself uh, about how complicated this story is. Uh, James Gallagher from the BBC has had a go at explaining it on the BBC website and you'll find it in various other uh, places. But the story, essentially the headline for this is that scientists have demonstrated an incredibly powerful ability to manipulate the building blocks of life uh, in two separate studies. Now, I just check, um, uh, uh, to be fair to you, Jamie, this isn't your speciality. This no, is I'm not, not a molecular uh, yeah, biologist. You're, you're, the nearest thing, you're the nearest thing in this room we have to a biologist, but you're, you're a neuroscientist, and uh, there are many, many branches of, of science, and people have their own specialisms and things that they know. Um, but do, we, do you know um, uh, to what extent this differs from uh, CRISPR? Which is, which is this uh, gene-cutting g- uh, um, process, isn't it? Yeah, so I have heard of CRISPR, and quite mm. a few of our colleagues do use it, but personally I don't know exactly how it, how it works. But yeah. it's just a way of manipulating genetic code to create cells or even certain types of knock-in, knock-out mice um, where they can actually edit the code so they express a particular... Um, characteristic, a particular phenotype which we would like to use. Yes, we so have you, to translate that word phenotype. Sorry, so <laughs> so phenotype is literally just the physical characteristic yes, yes. that is that is um, represented for by a change in DNA. Yes, and of course we know that because we used to think. I, I can I can remember being taught that uh, the, the, there was uh, in in our bodies there was loads of stuff which was referred to as junk DNA. We said, oh well, it's just you know it's left over from evolution. We don't need it anymore. And it turns out that basically some of it, some of the encoding is switched on and some of it is switched off. And it can be switched on or switched off. So we now know, the, now know this science that looks at this as genomics or genomics, depending on yeah. where you come from. And uh, so, in fact, it's not junk. It's, it's just... Uh, uh, it's it's there being way, used, it's or, being not used or not used, uh, 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 depending on whether the organism wants to. Now, this story here is about editing bases. So we know that DNA is made of four bases. By the way, a little, little trivia here. There's a film called Gattaca. And Gattaca is a science fiction film all about uh, genetic engineering and how in the future it imagines that everything about you will be known by examining your DNA the minute you're born. And the word Gattaca is made up of the names of these genes. So G for guanine, A for adenosine, T for thymine, and what have I left out? Cytosine. Yeah, C for cytosine. So you can, you can use those letters. So four, four bases. So as you understand it, what is the... 
what, what have you managed to glean from this story, Jamie? So what it seems like they've done in, in this study... Now, I did try and go back to the original scientific paper which explain, which the story's been taken from, and it's quite a complicated thing that they've done in the lab. And what they found is there are particular enzymes um, that do this kind of clearing up of spare DNA and spare bases in, in the cells anyway. And um, they've manipulated some of these enzymes to try and rewrite genetic code. So they're able to change AT pairs for GC pairs. Right. So, um, which is really quite interesting that they can do that because we know in um, terms of genetic diseases that a single alteration in any of these base pairs can um, cause a disease like cystic fibrosis was the example used in the story. Um, so just being able to manipulate that one gene back could potentially mean that we might be able to switch off switch cystic fibrosis now i mean the the chances of this happening in humans anytime soon is really slim but we might be able to create laboratory cells where we have cystic fibrotic cells that could be switched back to a healthy state which you know has great um, implications in terms of research for disease treatment yeah absolutely Uh, the the question though is it's a big ethical question isn't it we have it with CRISPR and and uh, this other method we we started talking about a few minutes ago and and this one now in that we can reach into the very stuff of which we're made the bricks of of uh, of human life and tinker with them and move them around um should we do it and that's a, it's a big question, isn't it? Well, I think, yeah, and I think it's exactly an example of where scientists, that you know, that obviously have our, we have our own value systems, they're to do the science, uh, and but you need to have that societal engagement. It's what public engagement with science is about, is actually understanding some of these questions and saying, well, if we give you this kind of evidence, what, what are the limits you think we should set? Because mm. most people you talk to would say, yes, actually, treating very serious inherited diseases is a really good idea. On the other hand, if you said, do you want everybody to be six foot six and some huge Adonis or Amazon figure would probably say that's not what it's appropriate for but having those discussions thinking about setting the boundaries is where it matters it's you know and you've seen that for example in embryo research debates in the 90s or a good case where that was done I think fairly well Uh, perhaps it's a bit less convincing on things like GM crops or GMOs in general and different power sources and that but you but you need to have that wider discussion to understand really what how we should proceed Yes, absolutely. And, and it's, always, it's always an issue, isn't it? Just because we can do something, should, should we, we, we do it? I guess in neuroscience, and you're doing neuroscience research, you're tinkering with our brains. <laughs> <laughs> and Just to clarify, <laughs> I scan people's brains. I don't, I don't mess them up. It does sound like an evil scientist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't get in there with a the screwdriver. And all that sort of thing. I'll just tweak this a tweet. But does that thought ever, ever cross your, your yeah, mind? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so... Actually, a friend of mine is doing some really interesting research into, um, I think it's Huntington's disease, and um, where she's basically creating... Um, little populations of cells that actually make up the pathway that causes Huntington's disease. So it's basically kind of a a Petri dish brain, um, which is really, really interesting. So they're basically um, uh, neural stem cells that are reprogrammed to be different parts 
of the brain and then they're used for doing research on what kind of things might be causing like the changes in the Huntington protein you know what kind of drugs might be used what proteins are involved and it's it's not you know if, if I describe that a different way it might sound like she's growing a brain in the lab <laughs> but that's yeah. not that's not at all what's happening it's just populations of cells that that almost act like a brain which means that we don't have to use more animals in research and we don't have to um, rely on more people to die of the disease to be able to use their brain tissue to understand what's happening with the brain so this kind of genetic manipulation you know reprogramming of stem cells and all these things that kind of fall into the same category are really really exciting and useful for research yes but the thing that i i that we have to be that we as scientists are always concerned about is when science is misrepresented and then that becomes inhibitory so you know when people say so we were talking earlier about the mitochondrial disease issue you know where they were saying oh we're creating three parent babies when actually all that was happening was the mitochondria being transplanted from one one egg to another yes and yes this the child would then have DNA from three parents, but that's not what was happening. It was a transplant and not, nothing more. She wasn't having three parents. So I think it's hard to um, describe science in a way that is accessible without, you know, giving it some kind of big demonizing headline and um, yeah. causing an ethical debate when actually there might not be one there. Mm. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. It's a fascinating uh, di- discussion to be had. Thank- thanks for that. And uh, I just want to say uh, a big thank you to uh, uh, Dr. Robert Massey and to uh, Jamie Thackraff for joining me this week and for uh, uh, helping uh, us chat through some of the science news. Um, we, uh, I'm not sure that uh, John Ford is presenting Getting Bristol Home because normally John would be with us in the studio but do stay tuned for Getting Bristol Home because it will surely follow uh, one way or another after the news. Don't forget uh, to join us next week and have yourselves a very good evening. Mm-hmm.